Welcome to Snakes and Otters, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Get ready. We're about to live in your head rent-free. Hello, Otterites. This is episode 147. I am Martin. And I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. All right, gentlemen, we are doing uh, Our Heroes, People You Should Know, whatever that phrase is that we're eventually going to call this darned episode now, (laughs) this segment, since we are not always doing specifically heroes, although today... This is a hero. I, I would episode. say this one's kind of a dual purpose. This is definitely a figure in history you should be acquainted with. Yes, yes. absolutely. But absolutely. he's also quite the hero, especially to you guys. Yes, he but. is. Uh, talking about, of course, the the great Gilbert Keith Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is uh, one of the great thinkers of the early twentieth century. Oh yes. Uh, and just a phenomenal mind, uh, a creative mind as well. Not only was he uh, uh, wrote on theology and uh, Christian ideas, but he also wrote uh, fiction. Uh, writer of the great uh, Father Brown mysteries, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, the uh, uh, PBS is shown here in the U.S., but they were uh, done in England. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's only the most recent version of them. I mean, yes, that's only the most recent version. Many, many times. Oh, yes, yeah. 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 Uh, they are phenomenally well-known. If people don't know him for his... He was a critic, a social critic, literary critic, historian, playwright, novelist. I mean, my God. He, he was made... a true Renaissance man. Yeah. He wrote 80 books, several hundred poems, some 200 short stories, and 4,000 essays. Most of it's for newspapers. The man was a giant in the intellect. Prolific polymath. Yes, very good. good. You loved using that word, didn't you? you I love using polymath, and then I got to do some alliteration to to add prolific. even better. That's right. A prolific polymath that is Chesterton. That's right. Yes. Uh, He's born in England. He's an Englishman. Uh, That's where the Father Brown mysteries are set, of course, which is interesting because Father Brown is a Catholic priest Mm -hmm. in... Uh, Anglican, or not Anglican, but uh, well, yeah, Anglican Church, yeah, yeah Anglican England, and uh, right because he, he does start out as a Protestant, uh, yes, kind yeah. of a run-of-the-mill English Protestant, but eventually would convert to full Roman Catholicism. Yes, because it and is like a, many converts, he is a zealot in the in yeah. the best sense. Yes, for him. right. Uh, uh, great friends with also uh, Hilaire, Hillary, Hillary, Howard, yeah, uh, Belloc. 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 Uh, who is a phenomenal, probably even a greater intellect than Chesterton uh, when it comes to his particular areas of, of interest. Yeah. Great theologian. You know, the thing that struck me in, in, in reading through a little bit of this uh, of this material on Chesterton, um, and we can talk more about this down the, down the road in the episode, but he seemed to be one of those people that, oddly enough, everybody liked. Which, you, you know, if you're not involved in the literary world... You say, well, what's the big deal? But in the literary world, there's usually somebody who hates your guts. Yeah, he was. Uh, well, <laughs> you know. he, he and George Bernard Shaw were like the best of friends, but they were absolutely in opposition to just about anything right. that you ever said. Right. They debated I mean, each other all the time, and were buddies. Belloc loved him. T. S. Eliot thought the world of him. I mean, just people they liked him, even if they didn't agree with him. And well, it, he was one of those guys that portrayals. And I'm presuming because they are so universally uh, the same, seemed to be he was just a jovial kind of man. Well, he was also he weighed 300 pounds and six foot four. <laughs> and that, his his physical presence did. He's kind of naturally jolly, is what he said. <laughs> well, that's right. It, that he brought that with him. Um, yeah. And that that the persona. But he, he was <coughs> funny too. Oh, oh. And he uh, could take the sting out of it. Wickedly funny. 
out of anything. And again, it, 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 when you read about literary figures, we've, as we've done a few in these hero episodes, uh, usually they have some kind of rival yeah. who, who really doesn't like them. Um, he didn't really seem to have that. No, there's no well, he, I mean, pomposity to him. He did have uh, rivals, but only in the sense that he loved to engage in intellectual debate. Yes, yes. yes. You know, not just Shaw, but H.G. Wells and yeah. Bertrand Russell, uh, Clarence Darrow. Yeah, mm-hmm. but nobody dumped on him, right. which is so. common in this world of, you know, you find somebody you've got to dump on, and you 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 wait till they're dead, and then you say, "Well, I I knew all along this guy was a fraud." Is Unfortunately, common in the literary world. Right, right. Well, you know, a lot of jealousies in the literary world, <laughs> uh, unfortunately. Uh, but you know, it's he—he he was the intellectual giant, but in a way that was so accessible. And you know, we talked about in the the Code of Honor episode last time about how he uh, often spoke in aphorisms. Mm-hmm. Well, that's true, but it, it, there was so much behind him. It wasn't just a series of one-liners. You know, there's real meat and depth. Oh, huge! With yeah. what he wrote, but it was so accessible that, and he was such a good writer that he could sum up so much into a single sentence or paragraph. Mm-hmm. That's, I think, his true genius. He was called the Apostle of Common Sense. Yes, the Apostle and, of Common Sense, and that was a pretty accurate description of him because once you hear him make a commentary on something, he goes right to the heart of the matter, just with it like a bullet, and you realize. Holy crap, he's right. Mm-hmm. But it, but it's something you didn't see until he brings it out. But yet it's absolutely true. And that's the talent of the man, the entowering intellect. Um, just to show you the impact that the man had beyond uh, England of the, uh, of the early 20th century. Uh, when he died, Cardinal Eugenio Pacelli, the future Pope Pius XII, <laughs> sends a telegram on behalf of Pope Pius XI, the then current Pope, to the people of England, expressing his regrets on the passing of Chesterton. Mm-hmm. Now that's pretty, that's pretty amazing and when you think about that's that. That's a giant. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, this is in a time where you know, Catholicism is still pretty much suppressed. And I mean, you can do it, but it's, it's looked down upon. Right. In, in well, England. it's, it, you know... It, it's not the intellectual elite who come out of Catholicism. Right. Well, in a way, you can say, well, yeah, that's true, because the two giants of English Catholicism are Cardinal Henry Newman uh-huh. and G.K. Chesterton, both converts. <laughs> right, absolutely. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, somehow, though, it attract, attracted those great minds, and boy, did they run with it. Oh, yes. I mean, they are both uh, twin pillars of Catholicism in the modern world, in the modern English-speaking world. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they really did uh, a great deal uh, to uh, promote the faith in ways that made it uh, both intellectually appealing and also understandable for the common man. Uh, so you know, I, think, I think those two definitely go hand in hand uh, in, in that sense. But, you know, I just love Chesterton because there's just so much fun stuff <laughs> in there. You know, uh, I admire a man who can be both witty and deeply intellectual at the same time. Mm-hmm. That's hard, gentlemen. That is a very difficult thing to pull off. Uh, you know, I think on our best day we might sniff the area, but you know, 
Yeah, I mean, uh, we're taking a swing at the piñata, but we're not necessarily getting any candy. Exactly. Uh, you know, guys like him, they're the guys who stuff the piñata, you know. Yeah, they crack it open, and uh, they're getting the getting the candy out of it, for sure. So, you know, like, like Francis said, you know, he's a prolific writer, uh, and yet he was also very, for being a, a Catholic in England, and some of his writing being uh, directly... Uh, Catholic, either in the content or in the setting, with Father mm-hmm. Brown, uh, he was an extremely popular man. And because you know, how do you write that many books and essays and all this if you're not extremely popular? Yeah, well, they're, they're he, selling. he had an appeal. Well, yeah, and he was his work was in all the newspapers. And for the last four years of his life, he did he would do radio talks for the BBC. He did like forty a year. So he's you know, well over a hundred of these things. Uh, that he had done during that time, and people loved it. I mean, he was he was universally mourned. I mean, the quotation you can find on the Wikipedia BBC yeah. official says, in another year or so, he would have become the dominating voice for the BBC. He was that. It's funny how. Yeah. I mean, that was how figures of the early 20th century took off mm-hmm. in Europe, in Britain in particular, is being on the BBC. Yeah, the this power, is in the thirties, early thirties. Yeah, the power of radio as it's brand spanking new. Mm-hmm. It's in its infancy, and there's already this tremendous power to it. Yeah, well, the, it, it was novel. Spoke uh, because it was new, but it was also novel in that the common man had access to things that heretofore the uh, the rich and the powerful only yeah. had access to. You didn't have to buy a ticket to go to a speech, right? Where you could feel. 2,000 people in some small hall in London, now it was the entire country could really hear for the cost of the radio. Right. And radios, early on especially, you know, you can build a crystal radio that is, you know, dirt cheap. Uh, the materials don't cost much, didn't cost much then, they don't cost much now. Obviously nobody bothers with it now because it's much easier to just, you know, listen to Spotify. <laughs> <laughs> or better yet, Snakes and Otters on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and, and other platforms. And, uh, any other platform you want us to be on. That's we're we're right. there. Tell your uh, automation, uh, what do we call those things, uh, household assistants. That's right. That's because you can actually say, we don't actually have an Amazon device in the room, do we? No, we do not. All right, so if we did, we could actually say, Alexa, let's listen to Snakes and Otters. And the most recent episode would come up. That's right. Yeah. I don't have one of those things. Nobody listens to what I say anyway, so it wouldn't either. <laughs> Uh, but here, you know, just again looking through some of this material, the, the descriptions are tremendous. Uh, James Parker in the Atlantic uh, called Chesterton an aphorist with a production rate of a pulp novelist. Oh yeah. wow! So yeah. it's just the man, the, the man, he, he just churning yeah, all these great things. It was so natural sayings. to him. Yeah, uh, and that's that's one of his greatnesses. Is that yeah? Know, he really died about twenty years too soon. He died at the age of sixty-two. Uh, another twenty years? Can you imagine? Yeah. Well, I mean, his his weight didn't help him. That, no, no, not at all. A lot of it. Uh, well, and you know, for the time, sixty-two was a good age. Yeah. Uh, you know, even get, especially given his weight. Yeah. Uh, you know, because I mean, sixty-five is the the age they set Social Security for in the U.S. because that was the average age of death. Yeah. You know, if you wanted to make that commensurate today, we would have the retirement age at about seventy-five to to seventy-seven. So, you know. Uh, longevity is, is a different different yes, meaning. Yes, yeah, so Parker goes on to call it you know poetry, criticism, fiction, biography, columns, public debate, 
Chesterton was a journalist. He was a metaphysician. He was a reactionary. He was a radical. He was a modernist. Uh, he was an anti-modernist, a parochial Englishman, and a post-Victorian gas bag. He was a mystic wedded to eternity. All of these cheerfully contradictory things are true. I love that. A mystic wedded to eternity. Yeah. Boys, if that doesn't sound like us, I don't know what does. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things I love about him is that there were no sacred cows except uh, the, the truth of the faith. And even then, I, I have a feeling if you, you know, you really got, because I'm obviously, I've not read everything. Uh, oh, you yeah, can probably skewer a, few, uh, a thing or two that uh, would occasionally go awry in the church. But, you know, when it comes to politics even, he had no side other than one. The only thing he, he sided ever with was what was true. That's right. And so he would cast aspersions both uh, conservatives and progressives. So yeah. this is a great quote. The whole modern world has divided itself into conservatives this. and progressives. The business of progressives is to go on making mistakes, and the business of conservatives is to prevent the mistakes from being corrected. And, and, <laughs> I love yeah. that. And so, again, when you talk about traditions, I'm the huge P.G. O'Rourke fan, but you draw a line from that to Minken to O'Rourke. O'Rourke wouldn't think so, but uh, he says very similar things in a lot of his books, yeah. too. Yeah. You know, the only sacred cow is that which is truly sacred. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's one of the things I love about him is that he is willing to point out the absurdity of what is taken for common sense. That's why it's called the Apostle of Common Sense, because right. it's not it's not common at all. And, you know, he uh, he's uh, where I got that quote, and I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but... Um, he was famous for saying, uh, you know, regarding original sin and the fallen nature of man, one only has to read the newspaper to believe in original sin, uh, or at least in the effects of it. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that, that's very true. Because, uh, you know, if it bleeds, it leads, right? Yeah, yeah and he was, gosh, he, he, could, he could do this stuff on the fly. It was kind of amazing. <clears throat> and when he put himself down to the point where he would write things out for his newspaper articles... It was incredible. And the funny, unbelievably funny. He's self-deprecating all the time. Yep. Uh, you would think, I mean, the, the, the debates that he does with Shaw and himself, they do this on all sorts of issues, um, constantly. You'd think they would hate each other the way they would do this, but they were great, great friends. And one of the exchanges one time, because Shaw was a very thin, real man, and uh, they, Chesterton one time says, to look at you, you can see that... Uh, uh, the, the famine, it is just, anyone to look at you, anyone would think a famine had struck England, and Shaw said, what to look at you, they think you caused it. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's just that type of, you know, you can't help but laugh when you hear him. And yeah. uh, EWTN has done some a great series on him, uh, many, many seasons of it, uh, where they have... Dale Alquist. Yeah, Dale Alquist is kind of like the guy of the Chesterton Society, which yeah. still is, you know, it's all about the appreciation of his wonderful, wonderful works. Uh, and they have, and I cannot remember the, the, the gentleman's name who plays Chesterton. He, That's, that is Dale Alquist. Uh, it's, another, it's another guy. Dale Alquist is the host. Okay, I was thinking. And, I thought it was and, not the, and guy and the other fellow is a guy who portrays Chesterton professionally. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, it's two, it's two different guys, and they would they bring him into that. And I, I'm sorry, I cannot remember his name, but he does live Chesterton. It's one of you know he does yeah. around, does that, and he's brilliant. My God, cool. he's brilliant uh, to cool. be able to because you should be able to experience Chesterton as Chesterton wished you to, because context is part of that. 
-hmm. and uh, it's really, really just amazing to hear a voice that proto pseudo Chesterton yeah. explaining things. Yeah. Well, I always love the self-deprecating humor. I mean, that was part of Reagan's appeal. Uh, yeah. Is that generally he made fun of himself and not others? It's hard not to like somebody who doesn't take themselves too seriously. Yeah, that's exactly right. So yes. it's, it's definitely again that you see that sweep of people from Chesterton on uh, into some very appealing, uh, you know, public figures. And he he was he was a one of a kind guy though. I don't I want, don't want to say that I, I can't. His influence was so great, and yet nobody ever. Even I don't think even attempted to equal him or he couldn't or be him. all of the things that he was. It's well, really yeah, that's a you know yeah that's a beyond generational uh, type of yeah. intellect and uh, uh, intellectual power because he was so good as you said he was a prodigious polymath and he, he truly was he was a great fiction writer an essayist a historian uh, two of two of the best. Uh, well, actually, three. He wrote uh, three of the most famous uh, biographies that should be written, uh, read by uh, by anybody. Uh, one on Thomas Aquinas, one on Saint Francis, and one on Joan of Arc. Mm -hmm. uh, now, they're not necessarily um, the same style you would read today. So, you know, today's readers might not want to, to slog through some of the language because it is, you know, hundred year old language. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's maybe perhaps a little more. Uh, uh, flowery prose, not flowery in the sense that it's fawning, but just you know, it, it's it's really good writing, and it's not boiled down to the to the uh, most simplest form, which you know, like I said, by today's standard might be uh, putting off uh, for people, but if you can take the time to enjoy the the turn of phrase and everything else in it, you know, those are some phenomenal reads. <clears throat> Almost everything that in the U.S. can be found at. Um, uh, oh, what's the Catholic publisher uh, that uh, uh, one that does uh, all of uh, Pope Benedict's uh, stuff? Uh, oh, you see, if you hadn't asked me the question, I Ignatius, think, Ignatius yeah, Press. Thank you. Yes, that's Ignatius right. Press. Yeah, it's got all that stuff out there. Yeah, so uh, and some of his stuff's public domain now. Yeah, yeah, well, almost all of it now is public say, domain. Yeah. But if you want, if you want to pick up a written copy, Ignatius Press is probably your best bet. Yeah, for a good deal cool. of it. Very interesting. The nice thing is, it's not you don't have to worry about translation, uh, which can be copyrighted, because mm. uh, he wrote in English. Uh, you know, he was he was against the things he should be against as well as the things as, as well as for. You know, he was he and uh, Belloc uh, very early on came out against Hitler mm -hmm. uh, and spoke very public. And, you know, which is not necessarily always the most popular thing to do. In it, was, it was a little bit brave to do in thirty three, thirty four. Yeah, because everybody did not want to stir this pot. Well, and you know, and, there and, were sympathizers. Yeah, quite in, a few in, actually. In, yeah, because yeah, I mean, even the king that abdicated was secretly a fan. So, you know, yeah, it could have been it could have been uh, dangerous for him to speak out. Yeah, he was one of the original anti-Nazis. Yeah, uh, he was also against eugenics, which you know now everybody says, well, of course, well, no. Prior to Hitler and what came out of World War II, everybody was into eugenics. I mean, that, they thought that was the pinnacle of science. Right. That was that uh, was that's the what Margaret place. Sanger used as as her yeah. uh, 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 basis for wanting to put Planned Parenthood and abortion clinics in poor neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. That's right. Uh, to get to, rid of the undesirables. That's right. To eliminate. That's yeah. right. Yeah. 
take remove from the uh, gene pool. I mean, those are you know. Her yeah, words. to better the rest of us, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which is you know, an abominable thinking. Uh, but well, depends on the mindset you come from. Doesn't yes. It? Well, it also depends on whether or not you're one of the ones that wants to be gotten rid of or doing the getting rid of. That's right. You know, when you're on the side of doing the getting rid of, almost nobody thinks it's a bad idea to get rid of the undesirables. That's right. Oh, yes, we could go down a rabbit hole on that one. As, well, as, as uh, the great Rinaldus Magnus once said, I noticed that everyone who is for abortion has already been born. You know. There you go. Uh, it's like, well, duh. It's like, yes, duh. Well, that, yeah, that's, and that's, that's kind of the point. That's right. So, um, obviously, you probably didn't know about Chester and all that much until we brought him up. Right, right. What's your first... Introduction to Chester. My first introduction was on the EWTN TV show, and this and this was goes back this twenty years, I guarantee. Oh, you. easily, yeah. yeah. If it maybe older than that, but that's when I first discovered it. And come on on Sunday nights, mm-hmm. and it soon became regular watching for me because I was fascinated by just the brilliance. You know, we we talk a lot about craft, mm-hmm. and we love those who do their craft well. Well, as a speaker and a writer. I mean, Chesterton is the top of that craft. I mean, he is I mean, the t- that towering intellect of what he just sitting. It's kind of like sitting back. You know, what was it? Tommy Lee Jones would say, "Sit back and let the man work." That's what you want to do. Well, he he's a savant in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because yeah. you cannot put out that kind of uh, incredible, not just quantity but quality, uh, without being inherently good at it from the beginning. Yeah, and yeah, and he obviously was not spending you know twenty eight drafts uh, to get. To get something right, or if he was, he was man. He was a fast writer. Well, I mean, he had to be a fast writer to begin with. Hemingway rewrote uh, rewrote the last chapter of *A Farewell to Arms* like forty three times, right. and yet he was he's considered an awesome writer. But yeah, yeah, he just and he was a perfectionist because he's a perfectionist. He, yes. But it, but and here's here's kind of where it lands is there ain't no substitute for talent, folks. Right. Well, you know, talent plus effort. Yeah. Is what's really well. That's correct right, because yeah. Well, I mean, talent with no effort is is almost tragic. Well, it is. Well, it's a waste. Yeah, absolutely. it really is. It, it's a waste of uh, of your gifts uh, as well as God's gift to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, is what the way I would look at that. Absolutely, that's, that's uh, almost yeah. criminal. I I would have encountered him uh, probably through something similar, if not the television show. Yeah. Um, uh, probably as I was first searching out Catholic source material. I remember reading uh, the the book Heresies, the Great Heresies by Belloc, yeah, uh, which led me to Chesterton, I think, or Chesterton led me to him. I don't remember which. Right. Yeah. They, they both did both quite a bit of apologetics. Yes. Huge friends. Um, and I remember reading one of the Father Brown mysteries early on, uh, back in the day. And, well, I remember. I, mean, I remember Father Brown mysteries being around back when I was in grade school. Right. Yeah, yeah they, see, that's not my experience because I didn't come from a Catholic background. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, it was just, I uh, don't even, I mean, I just happened to be in Catholic school, but it was just, it was in one of those mystery rap magazines that occasionally made the rounds. And, you know, the Father Brown Mysteries, it was just a thing. Uh, because they're, they're so well written, they still stand the test of time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. They really do. Uh, again, that goes to the man's intellect uh, and his ability to write because. Very few things translate well from era to era, uh, either because of the idioms or the conventions or the sensibilities that change. And I have found that that uh, Chesterton does, for the most part, transgress, uh, 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 not transgress, um, 
don't know what the word I'm using. Like, but anyway, he, he moves from one era to the next uh, in readability quite well. Transcends eras. Transcends, yeah. Transcends eras. Interesting. There's no... That has to be really special. Well, he's you have to be really special to get there. Prince of Paradox is what he's been called, too. It's He's very good at those aphorisms that take two things that shouldn't be and put them together in a way that's universally recognized as absolute. That's the way it always is. And he, he's just notorious for that. And it's got to be talent. I'm sorry. It's just, it's that. There's no substitute for that. And that's a reason to admire him. He is, you know, he's a, the great, you know, he is his own, he is Hemingway. He is all these other fantastic folks that just, just got it. You know, that we can watch and, you know, he, he's Michelangelo, he's Picasso, he's, uh, but in a different medium is all. Right, yeah, he's, right. He's his own artist in many respects. Yeah, yeah. The the creative genius there uh, is just it is. You're right. It is that. Le- it is the Michelangelo level, mm. uh, which is not something I'm willing to, to apply to too many people. That's right. But you know, he's one that you'd have to. That's yeah. great. Uh, and you know, like I said, even if all you do is look up a list of quotes, uh, as we did for the previous episode, to get yeah. a source. Uh, he, he really, it's just fun stuff to read, and it's funny how. And this is, how, this is how I know that you're dealing with stuff that is true with a capital T. Yeah. Is when you take those aphorisms and you can say, oh, yeah, I see that today. Exactly. And it's it's one of those things, I mean, I, I, and I love Dale Alquist, who is you know, president of the Chester Society. He has all this in his head. I mean, he can, yeah, <laughs> literally, I mean, that's why he was the host of the show. He can just roll it off. Well, he founded the Chesterton, Chesterton Society. So. Right, exactly. And he just he just knows it. He's just somebody that, you know, I'm, I'm there. And... I would could only aspire to be as good as that to just roll it off the tongue, uh, especially in a debate format, which you know Chesterton was famous for. Yes, yes. He he's the he, he um, yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, he he's the he's the classic guy that always has the gun at the gunfight, but his caliber is always bigger than his opponents. <laughs> it just is, you know, no matter yes. how big they come. So uh, one of the interesting things uh, I think about. Uh, creative people are the influences they have on others. Yeah. So, you know, that, you know obviously, you know, we've talked about, uh, uh, you know, Stephen King being an uh, influence on us, uh, Hemingway, Michelangelo, all these people that, that are uh, great and wonderful creators in their own right uh, that have influenced generations. And what I found interesting was uh, things like Neil Gaiman grew up reading Chesterton. Out of a school library, Neil Gaiman. You know? Absolutely, yeah. It's Certainly not one of the best, too, best writers. Not, yeah, but I mean, you know, it's just not one you would link, right? You know, uh, but yeah, and, and he was influenced by Chesterton, uh, and that I think is a phenomenal thing because mm. you know, I, you know, I would imagine Chesterton would have liked Good Omens. Yes, yes, he would have. Yeah, because that's the kind of thing that's a little irreverent, uh, and yet it it lays out the, the, that beautiful dichotomy of good versus evil in yeah. such a way. That it's clear. And he probably would not have done it exactly that same way, but, you know, uh, that's all right. I think he would have appreciated it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I can see where that could have it had a Chesterton type of influence. I'm into that. Yeah. It's just, you know, he's just one of these guys that I just love because it's fun. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen to that. You know, not everybody we talk about, like when we talked about Aquinas, 
Uh, I love Aquinas, but not because it's fun. <laughs> no, yeah. it's it's very. I, I got to work with Aquinas. Yeah, it, it's it's. But hardcore. I love what it does to me. Uh, but this sounds like he can be fun and intellectually challenging at the same time. Oh, absolutely. He he can make you think. Absolutely. Uh, you know, you, you take that list of quotes and and you look at it, and you can easily start seeing if you choose to. Yeah. Uh, that's the great thing about Chesterton is that. Uh, it's that he. This is not deprecating, but it's that Bugs Bunny level of genius because mm-hmm. it works on multiple levels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I'll give you that. And you know, I always like to use Bugs Bunny because, as kids, we all got certain, you know, funnies out of it. Mm-hmm. But as adults, we came back and realized, oh my God, there is so much more going on. That's right. Yeah. And with Chesterton, that's true. There's the surface, and then there's what's underneath. It's multiple layers of depth. That's yeah, and speaking of multiple layers of depth. Oh, Segway! Segway! Um, I find, because uh, it's time for Bourbon Break. Usually when we seg, well, not usually when we segue, because usually when we segue in one of these episodes, it's a rabbit hole of some kind. Yes. Uh, but no, uh, multiple layers of depth. You know, the best bourbons have multiple layers of depth. Absolutely. And uh, I think we're all drinking the same thing uh, this episode. Yes, it's unanimous. Well, that doesn't happen very often. Uh, no, it does not. Um, although, over here at, uh, at Martin's and, and, and at yours, Francis, um, you guys generally have a smaller number of types, whereas I'll have several different kinds and take forever to get through them. You guys are a bit more methodical about getting through what you have on hand before getting something new. We can only aspire to be you, Robert. Well, some of that was gifted. You know, uh, yeah. yeah. It so, is what it is. That's right. Yeah. yeah, and you know, it does take me a while to get through it. So you know, I I don't get new stuff all that often. I, I kicked around uh, trying to get out this week and see if I could stop by the Kroger uh, liquor store and get something a fourth one to try, but just didn't work out. That's all right. So as long uh, as you we're all drinking something. the Mictors again. Uh, you know, again, uh, something uh, here Michters, in Louisville. Yeah, the Mictors was it like a what are the Revolutionary War era recipe, they they call it. Um, very warm, very mellow. Um, that, that wonderful, wonderful hug right here in the chest. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, a little bit of hint of the, the, the nasal passage, mm-hmm. uh, getting that, that burn when you first have it. Yeah, it, it really does. Uh, it ends up in the, the, the throat, in the, in the in stomach. The so- yeah, esophagus, yeah, that's what um, I feel like. Which is unusual. You don't usually get such a, a layered, uh, multi... Uh, location, yeah, kind of. Uh, it comes effect. all the way through your system. Yeah, but it is such a smooth drink. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could gulp this easily. You would regret it, <clears throat> especially yeah, if you took a big snort sure, I was say and it hit you in the nose. Because uh, I, you know, I could see the nasal hairs uh, catching fire there. Not that it's a it's a bad burn or anything, but you know, uh, you you definitely get that effect. But the the best warmth really is in the, the throat and in the stomach. Uh, yeah, I mean, stuff. there's just uh, there's a great warmth in the nose. Um, I think I've described it as a touch of licorice in the flavor. I can sort of um, see that. I don't detect it, but and you have said that when we've done it I before. Think, I think I've just... said it was a little bit of licorice. But yeah, I mean, that just that just sips so smooth yeah. and so easy and just no... There's just nothing unpleasant about any of that. Right. There is no heart. I mean, I like to call that call that that warmth that burn the you know that bite, uh, which I don't know if that's necessarily a proper term, but that's what I like to call it. 
But it is not harsh in any way at all, uh, which is unusual. You know, there's no medicinal flavor, whether it's uh, chilled or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that's a killer for Martin. You know, you, oh, yeah. Once you yeah. get into medicinal territory, you know, the ejector seat button gets pushed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This the the aging is so well done for this that it just takes all of that medicinal quality out, and you just it's just warm and smooth, yeah, and just uh, mellow woodsy. It's got a good texture uh, yes. physically. You know, there are some that uh, almost have an oily effect mm-hmm. to it, which I can't stand. Ugh, ugh. Uh, but this is it, it, it's uh, it's a smooth liquid in itself. You know, it doesn't feel like it uh, lingers because it's left a, an after coating, uh, like some some alcohols do. Uh, I forget. It's good coloring too. It's I almost really like a, that. and a little nutty as well. A, a tiny bit of hmm. I don't know maybe kind of pecan or something. Could that, be that must be coming from the wood as well. That kind of a little bit of a nutty flavor. So Mictors, thank you. Awesome stuff. Very good stuff. Yes, you were you're going to say Francis? Oh wow, uh, it's. I don't know if you all, I know you've watched it because you recommended it to me years ago, but I'm just now starting to watch the TV series Deadwood. Oh, yeah. Uh, really? Yeah, I, for whatever reason, I never did. I thought it. you had seen it. No, I, I haven't seen it. I'm into the second season now. And um, it's it's excellent, as you well know. Yeah, Ian McShane, right? Ian McShane, absolutely. Timothy Oliphant? Yeah, exactly. They're, and, and they're fantastic uh, acting, and it's it's very dark at times and they're taking place takes place in Deadwood, South Dakota, you know, shortly but begins with Wild Bill Hickok's death in the first season. That's kinda where it's built around. So well, if you don't know that, you kind you know, if you don't know Wild Bill Hickok is dead, then yeah. He kinda wouldn't have any interest in the show anyway. Well that's right. Uh but they drink there. And there's in the in the second season, uh the one of the representative of William Randolph Hearst comes to town, played by Garrett Dillahunt, who's a really good actor. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of like this guy. He goes into one of the saloons, and he uh, uh, and I think it's the one that Powers Booth runs, if I'm not mistaken. And he says, oh, "I want some bourbon from Kentucky from Basil by Basil Hayden." Ah. So he actually mentions that in the in the script. Oh, inside wow. there. So you know, Basil Hayden was was a thing, even in the eighteen eighties. Nice, famous, very so, nice. Yeah, that's, 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 Which of course is family uh, for you. So. It is, but you know, it's it's one of our. You know, we've drank the, the, the his his wares many many times. And just, well, that is that is our uh, found. If you want to call it a founding bourbon for the three of us, it is it's the first one we ever drank it's, together. Yeah, it's, it's the foundation, the fountain. Yeah, the fountain of bourbon appreciation is is exactly. Hayden. So when I heard that, I says, "I've got to tell the boys. This has got to make that it is on awesome." Air. I've not seen, you know, I've not seen the movie yet, and yeah. I because you to. watched it when it first came out, if yeah. I remember right. And you know, we talked about it. you said you got to watch it, got to watch it, got to watch it. Hey, oh, yeah. love Ian McShane. We love anything the man does. Talk Did about, you watch it? No, I have not. But oh my about, gosh, I thought one of you guys had. Talk about somebody who ought to be at the dinner table with Chesterton and. Uh, Oh, Ian McShane. Ian McShane. Yeah. Oh, I, I could not imagine you know, to to sit well, with such a not a, to drop the f bomb, but I always think of that would be Ian fucking McShane. Well, <laughs> Especially that's we right. watch Deadwood. Well, that's correct. Well, there yeah, are other has, words that he uses a lot. Which yes, which we yeah, yeah, I mean, that, yeah, yeah. he has no f's left to give. That's right, the yes. man himself. That's right. He's just he's just the most. He's got such craft. He, he he's an yeah, amazing it's, actor. It's a presence. I mean, yeah. and that was always the thing about Powers Booth. I mean, 
he took over the screen when you watched him. Yes. yes. No matter who else he was in with, even really good actors, Powers Booth always just took over the screen for me. Very much, and he and he is a major, you know, major recurring character in in Deadwood, uh, and he gets the after credits, you know, and Powers Booth. Yes. Uh, I think he didn't show up until the second season. Uh, no, it was first, but it was later. It was, okay. It, I knew he, he wasn't, wasn't, wasn't immediate. Yeah. Because he comes to town probably three or four episodes in. It wasn't too that, far. Yeah, it's been so long since I've seen it's, it. But. It's not far. Because I was expecting, wait a minute, now he's here? Because why didn't they do it at the beginning? Because it was, But it was about halfway through or something like that. Yeah, it is really, uh, really good. Uh, the, the actress who plays uh, uh, Alma... The love interest. Um, oh yes, uh, uh, Molly Parker. Molly Parker. Yeah, yeah. She was. She uh, has gone on to great things. She, she was uh, Maureen in the recent remake of uh, Lost in Space. Yeah, she was in the first season of uh, of uh, Goliath uh, as as one of the uh, characters in that with Billy Bob Thornton. She's done tons and tons and tons of stuff. Yeah, she is. She's a fantastic actress. She really is, yeah. and, and that was one of the earlier roles that she had done. Uh, it's just a really great, you know, Keith Carradine plays. While Bill Hickok, my God, you would think he is. I mean, that's a tribute to how great an actor he is. He he loves to really submerge himself in very a role much so. And like he, that. I mean, he is Hickok on the screen. It's just uh, Brad Dourif plays the Doctor. I got to give a shout out. Yes, to him he's very yeah. good. That's a he's, great, he's great another job. one that is just subsumed into the roles he plays. Fantastic. Oh, yeah. I can't I can't uh, recommend it enough. The but woman it's, who plays uh, uh, Calamity Jane. What's her name? Um, Robin Weigert. She was phenomenal. Yes, she was a great. Well, it, 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 it's a fantastically meaty role. I mean, it's just it is. It's she's just she's just mean. She's just a cuss bomb. You know, uh, everything's all she does. She's like a force of nature, a tornado that comes in, and yet she's given such depth. Yes, uh, especially that first season. Um, uh, I highly recommend the show, but again, it's adults only. Whatever you do. Oh yes, definitely. And you can't only. be overly. If you're easily, if you're sensitive on seeing th- things, this is not going to be good. Because you know what, I am tired of putting warning labels on stuff. My God, we're if you're an adult and you're watching it and you can't handle it, just turn the damn thing off and go. <laughs> don't whine and cry about it. Try and cancel it. Just don't watch it. Damn it. Yeah. Oh, what's up? Just yeah. No, I'm I'm just saying. You know, it seems it seems it was groundbreaking. We have got to warn people about stuff. Yeah. Anymore. It was groundbreaking at the time because. You didn't, you know, you're, you've got, you know, people being fed to pigs. You've got, you know, yes. this cursing every other word. I mean, that was, granted, it was HBO. Yeah. Well, and Ian McShane, you know, he doesn't run just a, a saloon, but he runs a whorehouse. That's correct. And it's and it's very, it's not exceptionally graphic, but it's pretty graphic. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, I mean, you're, you're just time. attracting me more here. <laughs> but it's well written and well produced. And great, you're creating to, oh, great characters. I mean, come on, Ian McShane, that's all you need to hear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it is definitely an oversight on my part. So, it's, I think this it's is worth your time to, to This is leading me towards a Martin Monday. You uh, should. Oh. Who we would like to have dinner with. I love this idea. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, that'd be a good Hoopajube episode. Because we, we've already talked the dinner table so far as Chesterton and Ian Nietzsche. McShane and. Nietzsche. And Nietzsche yeah. and Mark Twain. Mark Twain. Well, for God's sakes, you know, Mark Twain deserves a table all by himself. I don't know that you want to share him with anybody else, but uh, well, we need to have a big table and What's well, gonna kind of have a whole dinner party? Yeah, that's right. I mean yeah. I, I don't think we'd be able to do Schwein and Schnitzel for everybody. I think we're I think we're back at barbecue. <laughs> I think we're I think we're at pulled pork on a big buffet table. Uh, and everybody belly up and find something to drink. And but I, I love your idea of 
Well, you know, we have multiple parties. We just mix and match who we're going to sit with. So three of us and three other individuals for a six-table setting. Or eight. This is definitely a hoopajube then that needs to be on the schedule. Yeah. Who, who, that sounds like an excellent idea. Yeah, who, who, who are we having Because a, a distillation of not just heroes, but then some other uh, people as well. People that you want, people that you'd love to have dinner with. We may have to restrict it to, or to have two different ones. Uh, everybody you'd like to have dinner with historically, or who's out there right now that actually could come to dinner. I'm okay with that. Yeah, yeah. We'll definitely have to put that on the. Uh, and on it the seems schedule. like our first invitee is Ian McShane. Seems to be our at least yeah. top of the PJ. PJ work and Ian McShane. Hey, did we ever hear you, back from PJ's people? No, we did not. I guess I didn't send that correctly, or they ignored me. Well, it's okay. We well, just have to send another one. I mean, we may have to. We may have to pull a Jack Kirby and just try to find his house in New Hampshire and set up in front of it. Yeah, he knock might shoot door. back, though. <laughs> Just knock on the door. And, hey, yeah. hey, you know when you wrote that book, that was really cool. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. Uh, all right, so back to Chesterton. So one of the things that uh, we talked about in the show prep and we haven't gotten to yet <clears throat> uh, is his... His economic theories. Yeah, I, 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 I knew yeah, that... I wanted, uh, to, wanted to get you going on this. So, uh, Chesterton, uh, being the great critic of both conservatives and progressives, uh, politically, you know, there's also, obviously there's going to be great criticism of both uh, uh, conservatives and progressives economically that go with that. Right. Because uh, it's all tied together. And uh, in his his own writings, he, you know, there, there's he's come up with a system called... Actually, I don't know if he came up with it himself, but he's the great uh, name associated with this uh, theory of ec- economy called uh, uh, distributism. Now, distributism is not about making sure everybody gets the same stuff. You know, it's nothing... Because he's very much going to be a critic of capitalism, and by capitalism I mean the purest form of laissez-faire capitalism. Right. Uh, which really only exists in the Russian black market. Uh, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, go. think about it. Uh, in the modern world, uh, there are so many different laws and theoretical protections in the law that uh, are, you know, there is no such thing as business can do whatever they want. Now they have to buy off the politicians before they can do whatever they want. There's an extra step in there. Yeah. Um, but distributism is really. Uh, what I think most people would recognize as a, a universally good thing, meaning that as many people as possible own their own means of production. Now, that means of production is a very loaded phrase, unfortunately, no. in, in economics, because you know usually you go to, oh, well, that's a Marx thing. It's like, no. It means everybody should be able to make their own money without relying on somebody else. Mm-hmm. It's own very, their own assets. I mean, yeah, I mean, buy local is is part of that. That's, that's yeah, yeah, that's you yeah. know, and that has become and, and, a big thing in recent right. years. And, and, and in, at its best, that's where capitalism is because it's about owning your own livelihood in some well, way. But it also because of capitalism at its root is about transferring assets from something that's less valued to higher valued. It then tends towards concentration. Yes. Well, all economies, uh, economic systems, I think, uh, 
have that tendency. Now, because distributism is, is a great theory, nothing's ever been put into place that actually has called itself that. Um, and there's really... It's really less of a system so much as a description of the ideal way things should yeah. be. Uh, so it's a little bit harder to say you can put it into practice because you can argue that when this country was founded, it was a distributist economy. Uh, very much so. Uh, the problem is that uh, everything tends to concentrate in greater and greater quantities in fewer and fewer hands. Right. right. The push in the early 20th century towards trust-busting and, and anti-monopoly is a reaction to that, but that eventually also gets watered down. Yes. Because it's it's like, well, at some point, these things sort of have to happen because economies of scale are kind of natural. Right. We don't like them, but they're kind of natural as well. Well, they're also the only way to deliver certain things. Well, yeah. You know, uh, as, as technology increases and industrialization increases, yeah. there is a creation of yeah. things that cannot be done on yeah. local well, that's And you can make the argument, and, and you know, Chesterton might very well, that you know, maybe some of that industrialization should not happen. Oh, that's, yeah. Just because we can produce well, that's correct. a million widgets for 20 cents a piece doesn't mean we should. Uh, well, that's you're, 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 there's the tension. Yeah, yeah there and, and you, there has to be a recognition that capitalism should be telling us what to produce. You know, if you're producing a million widgets at twenty cents and none of them sell, then the business fails. Yeah, yeah. and and yeah. that's a clear message that no, those shouldn't have been produced. Right, right. It's so, just you don't get the message until after you've done it. <laughs> you know, whereas a lot of people would say, well, we need to have the message beforehand. Well, but there is, you don't know beforehand. Well, the, well, the but, market is not that predictable. Exactly. Well, but the, the problem comes when, you, when you're trying to, to fit things that don't really fit together um, into the same system. You know, distributism as an ideal, distributism is a very Catholic way of looking at things in this sense. Yes. Um, it sets the ideal, and that's what we shoot for. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a very Roman law kind, and Roman by I mean you know Rome is in the city, uh, Roman Empire. You know, these are the ideals. These are what yeah. we shoot for. Yeah. <clears throat> and American law is not that. Bad. And American law is not that. Um, and so yeah, the ideal is we have as much locally owned business as possible. Uh, it, it, it's a very much a. Um, uh, subsidiarity uh, mm -hmm. kind of thing, you know, where uh, you want the ownership of the means of production to be at the lowest level possible mm -hmm. uh, because that gives more power and agency to those at the bottom of the economic ladder. Yes. And that's always a good thing because politically, when you have more power at the bottom, you're less likely to have the bottom rise up to strike down those at the top. And turn everything upside down. Yes. Uh, that's how you get the French Revolution. Or the Russian Revolution. Yes. I was going to say the Russian is a good one too, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's better to be disruptive at the bottom than it is to wait until the disruption has to be complete. You know, I know that I would call it disruption. destroy everything. Well, you know, uh, universal. The innovation... It's yes, okay, the, yes, yes. The, the innovation that disrupts the status quo 
it's always wonderful when it's at the bottom. You think of like Apple, the this wonderfully disruptive and innovative company, started out with just two middle class guys that had nothing. In a garage. In a garage, you know. That's that's the great part. That's the greatness that capitalism can bring, embracing a distributist ideal. You know, and of course the worst of what capitalism can bring is when somebody that's already at the top wants to take over another part of the market, that's when you get the Microsoft Zune. <laughs> you know, well, you get the iPod when you're disruptive, you get the Zune when you're trying top down. But you know what? Honestly, I thought the Zune was a better product. I really did. Well, and that, that well, there it's the paradox. <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, Betamax was a better product. Well, it's, it's exactly. They're very great examples, both of them. Yeah. That, but, well, actually, I think Betamax did come first, but uh, VHS uh, uh, certainly took over, uh, even though the, the Betamax was theoretically a better product. Of course, we look at, look at it today and it's like, well, it's still tape. That's right. Well, you know, it's digital's way better. Yeah. It, uh, you know, it was just, it depended on adoption rate. I mean, right. you, you know why VHS took over, right? Probably because it was cheaper. Because porn was produced on VHS. There you go. Well, you know, the ding, ding, ding. And porn moved from real, yeah, real actual real. film, yeah. real to real film, where you had to rent these, you know, to the very cheap medium of videotape. Right. And that... That's, you know, a, that's a great point, yeah. It, it's adoption, you know. Yeah. Well, it was People trampled, remember this. trampled Betamax. It was a market force, but yeah. it, was, uh, it was a one you didn't talk about much. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, yeah. think about all the early video stores. You know, not. I mean, we're I'm talking before Blockbuster. Yeah. And what Which was the other, the one that was the big competitor for Blockbuster? Uh, well, Roadrunner was around here. Roadrunner, yeah, that was. Yeah. Another, there was another that national was local. one. Um, I don't remember. It's been so long. Yeah. But anyways, before those, you had the mom and pop places, and all these little mom and pop video stores had a little back room with a curtain. Yeah. That's where all the adult videos were. And yep. they, they had a little and, sign, must be 18 to go past this point. And that was, you know, that's what paid their mortgage. Yeah. Because it's, they're always gone because they're constantly, constantly being rented out. There was an enormous underground unspoken market for that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, because, you know, when it went corporate, that that went away. That went away. Yeah. That's right. And, well, and then the industry picked up and moved somewhere else. Exactly. Exactly. That's, that's when you get... But, you know, the, the thing about distributism is... Uh, I, it, it, I I don't like to use capitalism for uh, the non-socialist side of things because again, we don't have pure socialism anywhere. We don't have real, we don't have pure capitalism anywhere. Um, what John Paul termed as an acceptable economy, I think, very closely mirrors uh, distributism and what most Americans think of as the ideal economy, which is a market economy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's well, a far yeah, that's where better is going. Yeah, yeah, and I think yeah. that's a far better yeah. way to talk about yeah, it. Because I mean, like, capitalism yeah. has become actually loaded with negative connotations, which just blows my mind. Yeah. yeah. Again, at a pure definition, all capitalism is is again moving your assets from something that you value less to something that you value more, whether that's bartering or buying. Some form of market marketplace. Again, it. We talk about Bitcoin. Uh, if you value Bitcoin less than gold, then yeah, you're moving your Bitcoin to gold or whatever. That's all it really is. 
And then the legal structure has to be there that guarantees if you claim you own it and can verify that, you're protected from other people wanting to take it. Yeah. That's at its core as all capitalism should be. But in allowing that, then you also have to allow that Disney owns all the whole world, unfortunately. Yeah, when they said it's a small world after all, they meant it. They meant it. I mean, it's a small world, but I wouldn't want to paint it. But, (laughs) you know, they own it. Yeah. They Uh, own pretty much the whole entertainment world outside of Sony. Um, Yeah, and it's funny because it wasn't that long ago when we were saying we had similar reservations about Sony. Yeah. Because they owned so much. I mean, would it be awesome to, to... investigate breaking them up I think so I personally do think yes uh, William Howard Taft would look at Disney right now and go we need to break this up oh yeah well when you think about Disney does anybody have the gumption to do that anymore no no trust busting is is a thing of the past the last big trust that got busted uh, actually put itself back together yeah, and AT&T. AT&T actually put together all the pieces that went away. Now, I, now, the interesting thing is, though, that worked because it gave us the modern uh, communications yes. industry. Yes, I mean, breaking up AT&T then turned out to unleash what we know today is the cell phone business, yes. basically. I mean, people don't understand this, but the the communication infrastructure as it existed when we were young doesn't exist anymore no no uh, i mean somebody who has a landline you go you have a what it's very rare it, I mean, even people outside of our, businesses yeah i mean people our generation have dumped them completely yeah um you know people have dumped cable television which was disruptive and innovative in its time yeah uh, but now it's seen as well, you got what why do you still have cable and it's just you know, that's that's the beauty of what can happen if you break these things up. Mm-hmm. It can be this wonderful, chaotic, beautiful destruction that leads to something more awesome later on. Uh, you know, the, the first and the last great trusts that were busted both got put back together. Standard <laughs> Oil mm-hmm. got put back together. And unfortunately, they did not call it Standard Oil. I, they was, there was talk. About, rena- about naming the corporation that got put back together as Standard Oil. And they did. I think it was a huge mistake. I think yeah. they should have done that. Mm-hmm. They really should have. But you're right. It's interesting, though, what, what is owned by smaller and smaller hands. And these are the kinds of things that, that uh, distributism would help guard against. Now, the question is, do you, is it better to keep it from happening at all? Or is it better to let it happen and then break it up? Because that unleashing the chaos is what garners the next revolution in, uh, or innovation. Yeah, the next leap forward. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know, the chaos of war, as we talked about in a prior episode, is often the, uh, the, the spark that lights the next round of innovation. Just as, you know, breaking up these trusts and these, these larger businesses sparked an incredible amount of innovation. Because that's always the argument against breaking up something. Oh, but but that'll cause such a disruption. That'll cause such chaos in the market. Yeah, Yeah. that's the good part. 
Yeah, that's yeah. the good part. That's Chaos what we want. Transformation. That's correct. Well, um, you know, yeah, and like, I understand it. Yes. So what if you you know you have a week's downturn in the stock market? So what? It'll come back. Well, generally, the, that week of downturn in the stock market also comes with the loss of tens of thousands of jobs. That's a bad thing. That yeah. that's an objectively bad thing that does come out of it. So you know, in a, in an absolute term, you know, yeah, sure, overall it's a good thing, but on the individual. You know, that sometimes sucks. Yeah. And, you know, that has to be... All of these things need to be balanced. Yeah. So, yeah, I, you know, maybe Chesterton comes down on the side of you don't let uh, let it get that big. I don't know. Because, you know, back that, then, I mean, was, right, he, that, he came of age at a time when uh, the breaking things apart was a good thing. And objectively speaking, breaking those things apart was a good thing. Yeah. Because they were, monopolies. they were he's monopolies taking, in the worst sense. Yeah, he's taking the next step of why are we breaking these things up when we should have prevented this in the beginning? Most likely that's that would kind of, be, That's yeah. kind of where distributism ends up yeah. is we need to guard against letting this happen in the first the place. The problem though, and, and again... And again, very Catholic, very subsidiary, yeah. the whole... Yeah, Local you know, the, is the best. solidarity and subsidiarity thing is it does come into play. Uh, you know, if not everybody can own their job. So my former pastor, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the one who has the wonderful bourbon collection, um, you know, we had talked. We often talked about distributism, and you know, I pointed out that you, you not everybody can actually own their job. You know, I can't own the job I'm in. Because, I mean, you know, I can conceivably own a portion of the company. But I can't own the job because if I can be fired from it, first of all, then I don't own it. And you know, his 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 thought was, well, you can just be you know compensated for for being for, you know being forced out. It's like, well, it's still not, you know, it's a golden parachute at best. Yeah. Um, you know, certain jobs aren't things that are ownable uh, in, in many ways. Uh, and as soon as you start organizing an economy, there's going to be owners. And there's going to be workers. There's just no way around that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the and, question and, is how much right. of, you know, how close are they going to be? Yeah. And if organizing. If your CEO makes, you know, 200 times what the guy on the line makes, that's inherently bad. Because that's going to cause uh, social disruption. Yeah. You know, keeping those guys closer together works out better for most people. That's where distributism is going to come in on, on those kinds yeah. of things. Because... Yeah. The guy who makes you know only a tenth of what the CEO makes is going to be more invested in that company than the guy that makes you know one half of one percent of what yeah. the CEO makes. Yeah. That's right. This always makes my skin crawl when you start talking about organizing an economy because somebody gets to do the organizing. Well, and the power, you know. So when I use that term, I mean you know as yeah. far as because uh, there there's a great most of it outside of communist countries is self organizing. Yes, uh, you know. And ideally, the government builds the infrastructure that we all take advantage of. Right. And again, uh, that puts the law in place that makes it safe. And that's safe. part of the infrastructure, yes. 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 That makes it safe for you to enter the economy. Yes. And distributism would recognize that yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, these are the kinds of things, though, that, again, makes me love Chesterton even more. That's right. Because there's just so much there. Yeah. There's, there's almost to... nothing you could want to talk yeah. about that he did not write. You could dig into for, for, for hours on that. Yeah. Um, was... So certainly that's why there's a Chesterton Society and, and it this stuff still resonates 70 years after his death. Yeah. Is there's so much to unpack. Yeah, actually this... we're 75 years. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, this year. is a full suitcase. 
Oh my gosh, this is a steamer trunk. Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack here. Yeah, amen, brothers. So we're at uh, right at an hour, just a few seconds shy of an hour, uh, and you know I. I don't even think we did justice to the man. No, no, no. We no, again, the top level. We knew that going in. Yeah, uh, but I mean, right. the, and, and we, we could did fill the episode with quotes if we wanted to. <laughs> right, and I wanted to avoid that. I purposely put that away because we could have sat here and done that all night yeah. too. Uh, but and, and quotes about him, not just the quotes from him. But right, yeah, we just enough. did two or three yeah. quotes about him. But you know, this is one of those guys. You know, almost anything he wrote is worth reading. And as Francis said, a good deal of it is in public domain. You could probably get it at uh, Project Gutenberg very Absolutely. easily. Yeah, love Project Gutenberg. Uh, I'll have to see if I can find the Everlasting Man. That sounds yeah, like that's yeah, that's an excellent book. Yes. Very much indeed. Or you is. know, even just you know, the Father Brown mysteries are a great fun read. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're looking to you know, they're short too. They're relatively short. By they're all short stories. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. He did do novels. After so, that, so, anyways, uh, GK, he's the man. Indeed. So, Francis, what's next? Pop culture next time, boys. Uh, and we've been we have been kicking this around a lot. This is uh, sitcoms, television sitcoms. Uh, why we love them? Why they're great? Some of the great ones. Uh, how they reflect us? How we influence them? All that sort of stuff. We're gonna... Life imitates art, or art imitates life. Well, that's uh, you have to tune in next episode to find out. Hope you enjoyed another pointless discussion of eternal questions. Remember, new episodes publish every Friday at noon Eastern. Spread the word. We're on all the major podcast platforms. And leave us a comment or review because that helps others find us. We're on Instagram, Twitter, as well as our website, snakesandotters.com. I'm Martin. And I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. Join us next week, same snake time, same otter channel.